Welcome to the Airman Helping Airmen podcast. I'm your host, Khalith Wright, CEO, Air Force Aid Society. Join me as we chat with extraordinary guests, share stories, and learn how amazing people are making a difference in the lives of so many Air Force and Space Force families. Hello and welcome to the Airman Helping Airmen podcast. I'm your host, John Farrell, Chief Operating Officer, Air Force Aid Society. Join me as we chat with extraordinary guests, share stories, and learn how amazing people are making a difference in the lives of so many Air Force and Space Force families. My guest today is Rich Davini. Rich has over 20 years experience as a Navy SEAL officer. He's completed more than 13 overseas deployments. 11 of those were in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's had numerous leadership positions, including the commanding officer of being the Navy SEAL command team. He retired in 2017, and he's also an author. And we'll talk a little bit about his book, The Attributes, later in the podcast. He also speaks and consults for optical performance, resilience, and stress. And while serving as an officer in charge for his training in naval warfare, he's helped spearhead the creation of a directorate that fuses physical, mental, and spiritual disciplines within the force. He led a small team to create the first ever mind gym. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means and how to help SEALs train their minds to perform better, faster, and longer. Of course, he has a huge presence on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I encourage you to look on your own when you get a chance. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so happy to have you, sir. And uh, what I'd like to do first is, can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a Navy SEAL officer, and what inspired you to join? Tell me a little bit about your experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I grew up wanting to be a pilot, a Navy pilot specifically, and no bust on the Air Force, but I really wanted to see if I could land on ships. <laughs> and so uh, my brother, my twin brother and I really were bent on that from the get-go, from the time we were like six years old. This is pre-Top Gun, by the way. So Top Gun only solidified our desire and so we were kind of in that direction. It was after the first Gulf War in the 90s that I read an article in Newsweek magazine. It, it kind of detailed the different spec ops forces. And so you, know, you had the Green Berets, the Rangers, the Air Force, CCTs and PJs, and of course, the Navy SEALs and the Marine Force Recon. And I looked at the SEALs and I was like, man, these guys are actually, they're everywhere. Sea, air, lands, they're underwater, they're in the desert, they're in the, in the snow, they're skydiving. I said, that's pretty cool. And so when I went to, I went actually went to Purdue University and I was an ROTC and really decided, I said, well, I'm pretty sure I know I can be a pilot, but what I didn't want to do was be a pilot and wonder if I could be a Navy SEAL. So I decided to, <laughs> decided to drive for SEALs, went to SEAL training in 1996 and uh, fortunately got through and spent a career in that profession. I'm really glad I did. So, so I got to ask a couple of follow-up questions. Did your brother become the pilot? He did. He actually ended up going to the Marine Corps and he flew the Harrier, the AV-8B for 20 years. And so that was cool. I kind of lived vicariously for him and then retired and now is a FedEx pilot. So That's awesome. That's just such a neat aircraft. And then I, another follow-up, have you gone and seen Maverick? I have. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. So you know, my wife and I went, we absolutely loved it too. I think I like it more than the original, honestly. Well, I do. I mean, one of the things I love about it is that it's just pure, unabashed entertainment. It's kind of like a Marvel movie. Some people are down on the Marvel movies, but there's no presupposition. There's no like undue drama. It's just, hey, I'm just going to entertain you for two hours, sit back and enjoy the ride. And I really loved it. And of course, I, I, the, the flying scenes and the filming was fantastic. So Fantastic. So a little bit more as in your SEAL experience. So you were obviously involved with the selection process. 
were you able to tell what recruits would be successful from the get-go? And give us give the audience an idea of the washout rate, because very few people who start as SEALs end as SEALs. That's true. So I was in charge of, so there's a couple of things I kind of have to clarify. So there's basic SEAL training called BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training that's uh, held out in, in San Diego, California, six months long. This is where all the Navy sailor officer and enlisted go, and they go through this pipeline to see if they can graduate and become SEALs. That selection process has about a 90% attrition rate, between 85 and 90% attrition rate. And that's the first wicket. I, in fact, though, I was in charge of that. I was in charge of another selection process. I was part of a very specialized SEAL command. At this specialized SEAL command, we would take some of the best SEALs from other commands and bring them to our command and put them through our own nine-month selection process. And now this selection process had about a 50% attrition rate. And so that's okay, because any selection process implies attrition. But what I was tasked with doing, one of the problems we had was we weren't able to effectively articulate why guys weren't making it through. So to answer your question, it was difficult. It's always difficult to see pre-training, whether it be buds or the training I was running, whether or not a guy is going to make it through. And it's because the environment is what teases out these attributes and these qualities. And when I was doing, when I was running this training, I had to dive into performance and say, okay, performance is more than just about the visible skills. We're looking for things that are these hidden qualities, these attributes. And when we start looking for these attributes, understanding this, we start to understand what's going on and what we're actually interested in finding. And so we talk about whether or not you can pre-determine whether or not someone can get through. It's very difficult because you almost, you have to put them through the experience to tease out these attributes to see if they have what it takes. Uh, but it's really these attributes that are the most important in determining how someone's going to perform in any given role, but especially in, ch- in stress challenge uncertainty. And we know the military holistically, but certainly the Navy SEAL teams, it's all about performance in stress challenge uncertainty. That, that is the job, right? So the, tr- the training is designed to tease this stuff out. Understand. So you started by saying... So I want to make sure I understood you clearly. Only 10% make it through buds, it sounds like. Yeah, just about 10%. I mean, it, it wavers between 15, 10 or 15%. That's a number that's been maintained pretty steadily throughout the years, no matter what, regardless of what the Navy's tried to do to make that number go up. It's basically been that number. And that just speaks to the kind of unconscious genius of the program, of the training program. So... So that second phase, the nine month that you had, obviously, they've already served as SEALs. They are SEALs, but you said 50% make it, 50% don't. What's the defining factor between BUDS and that? I know that you're talking about the attributes and the follow-up to that will be what what are some of those attributes and what have made them successful and what do they have in common? Yeah, I mean, so we talk about SEAL train, basic SEAL training BUDS. I think the attributes that every candidate has to have to make it through are the grid attributes and a heavy dose of them. That's courage, adaptability, perseverance, and and resilience, okay? So you need to have those. Now, we could argue, you know, I think there's a bit of the mental acuity attributes that's involved in there, specifically compartmentalization. I don't think anybody can make it through BUDS training without compartmentalization. The ability, and that's really the ability to assess and prioritize the information that's in front of you and basically choose, decide what to focus on and focus on that and block out everything else. That's compartmentalization. Your ability to do that effectively speaks to whether or not you're going to make it through. Because BUDS is really all about going from one miserable thing to the other for a long period of time. <laughs> you know, And so every candidate who makes it through has the grid attributes and has certainly some of the mental acuity attributes, specifically compartmentalization. In terms of the specialized training that I was running, the distinguishing factor, I would say, at that level 
was a predominance of the mental acuity attribute. So now we start adding in situation awareness, the level of vigilance. So again, some people are highly situation aware. In other words, they notice a ton of things in their environment. Other people, I mean, they're kind of in la-la land. And again, it's not, there's no judgment there, but it's just the way you show up. So there's situation awareness. There's also compartmentalization. So how rapidly and effectively you can compartmentalize. Task switching. And this is really important because this is the ability to shift your focus between conscious things, right? So in other words, this is not multitasking. We all know multitasking is a myth because the conscious mind can't focus on more than one thing at a time. And by the way, some of you who might be listening might disagree with me and say, well, no, Rich, I can drive my car and listen to my podcast, right? Because I'm driving my car right now while listening to this podcast. But I will tell you, it doesn't count if you've relegated that skill to the unconscious. The reason why you can drive your car and listen to this podcast is because you don't have to think about driving your car. If at some moment a car swerves in front of you and you have to take evasive maneuvers, I guarantee you'll have to rewind the last 15 seconds of the podcast because your brain will have switched, right? So that's task switching. The ability to task switch very rapidly and effectively and do those shifts is ramped up when you're doing some of the more complex SEAL level activities or missions. And of course, learnability, how fast are you able to learn and metabolize lessons and make that part of your system? So I think those are the differences. It's mostly grit and mental acuity. And as you get to the higher levels, it's more mental acuity. Yeah, I so appreciate what you say, multitasking. My bride is sitting in the other room listening, and I'm sure she would agree with you 100%. So I think I'm a good multitasker, but she'll be the first to say, focus, focus. Right. <laughs> so I appreciate you sharing. So if you could give advice to someone who wants to be a Navy SEAL, whether they're 18 going enlisted or 22, 23 going officer, what would be some of the key things you would tell them to focus on in preparation? Well, first, focus on why you want to do it. Because I will tell you that a lot of kids want to do it because they get enamored by the coolness of it and the sexiness of it that they see on TV and movies. And although it's cool to be a Navy SEAL, doing the job of a Navy SEAL while you're doing it is never cool. (laughs) It's always tough. It's hard. It's gritty. It's dangerous. And I always kind of joke, I mean, there's never any cool music playing when you're doing your job out there. The water's always cold. It's dark. It's wet. It's hard. The people who are out to kill you are out to actually kill you. And so the job is very, very tough and it's real. So first understand why you want to do it because it's not just about being able to wear that badge. And likely if you go to training, if you, have, if you actually make it to training and that's your goal, you will probably quit or at least you'll be drummed out by the rest of the guys. Now, if you are getting there, I would say certainly understand that you have to have, a, there's a physical standard you have to meet. I mean, the, you have to do, and nowadays the physical standard is pretty intense. It's a lot tougher from a physical standard standpoint than it was 20 plus years ago when I did it. Back when I did it, I think you had to do like 10 pull-ups to pass. And now it's like, if you don't do 25, I don't think you even get looked at. So it's upped because the popularity has gone through the roof. And so the competition has gone through the roof. However, so so the physical requirements are there. However, don't think that just because you're a physical stud that you will make it through SEAL training because SEAL training is not at that point. You might have to use that physicality to get into SEAL training. Once you get to SEAL training, however, you will be crushed. They will take every ounce of that physicality that you have and take it out of you by getting you cold, getting you wet, getting you dirty, getting you tired. And so then they take you down to zero or sub-zero and see if you have what it takes. This is why a lot of times you get, sometimes you get these division one athletes coming to SEAL training and they were the physical, they were physical studs. I mean, physical phenomenons and they'd quit within a couple of days because they're, because they, in those cases, they were so used to being in a physical environment where they could operate at their best. 
right? And SEAL training is about how you can operate at your worst. That's what it is, because combat is about how you can operate at your worst. So there's a little mental shift that has to go on there. And that's what I would say. You have to be mentally prepared. Be physically prepared to get in in the first place because it's competitive, but you better be mentally prepared. Very well said. And I think there's a lot to say for that. Now, our audience may wonder, can a woman become a SEAL? And if so, how many make it through? Yeah, well, women can become SEAL. They've opened it up to women. None have made it through yet. I don't think any, as far as I know, none have made it to training yet. But the door is open for women to become SEALs. And so if there are women who are interested, yeah, the door is open as far as I know. There are, in fact, there's a, there's a, a female who just went through the SWIC training. So SWIC's a special warfare combatant crewman. It's not a SEAL, but it's a boat guy or gal. That's a different selection process, but there was a female who made it through that. So that's really cool. Uh, she's, as far as I know, again, I'm, when you leave the community <laughs> as a retired guy, you only know what you can kind of keep your ear on or some of your friends might tell you. So, you, you know, I, in some cases, know as much as the public does. But as I understand, there's a, a female there and it's, it's fantastic. But it is open to women as far as I know. So you retired in 2017. So how was your transition when you were hanging up that uniform? Did you know what you wanted to do in your life? Did you have a plan? I assume just like we all do, you went through some semblance of transition assistance program and prepared for that. But I know a lot of my peers, they have difficulty adjusting. How was your adjustment? Yeah, my adjustment personally wasn't too bad, but I had also, I had done almost 21 years. And so I had done pretty much everything I wanted to do in the SEAL teams. And so really wasn't really about me leaving and not getting to do things I wanted to do is more about just shifting communities and trying something new. And I think the transition of that is certainly something that has to be taken seriously. And I, anybody who's transitioning from such a lifestyle of camaraderie and brotherhood, and, and certainly in our case over the war years, excitement, needs to understand that the civilian world does not operate that way. And I, so I would recommend people that are transitioning to just expect that when you hang that uniform up and you put that identity on the shelf, you need, well, I say that, you you need to put that identity on the shelf. Uh, the identity, you need to find a new identity. That's an important part of transition. I think the people who have the roughest time with transition are the people who can't get over the fact that they ha- they're they not that anymore. They have to find a new identity. And in, in the SEAL teams, it's actually especially apparent because we always joke that when you're a, when you're a former Navy SEAL, it's not like a Marine. You know, the Marines are like once a Marine, always a Marine. That's not the case with a SEAL. It's not once a SEAL, always a SEAL. Once you're not a SEAL anymore, you are a former SEAL because you're not doing the job anymore. And, and this, the mantra in the SEAL teams when you're in it is earn your trident every day. And as soon as you're out, you're not earning your trident anymore every day. So when you're not a SEAL anymore, you are a former SEAL, that's an identity shift. But it's a big process. It takes courage, which all of you have if you are in the military in the first place. So, And courage, by the way, is stepping into that which we fear, taking a step forward. It takes that. It just takes in a different form. So find that, you know, use the transition opportunities, find help, Talk to other people who have transitioned. Don't do this on your own. Understand it's going to be tough. And if you feel like you're going down a spiral, gosh darn it, find someone, talk to someone. There's enough resources out there to help and get help. Don't try to be a tough guy or tough gal. Think you can just manage it on your own, okay? You can't. You know, Find help. That's what I would say. Well said. That's a perfect transition to talk a little bit about your book. So first of all, what made you even want to write a book? And then would you tell us a little bit about the attributes and what it's all about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the work I did at this command, I was deconstructing this attribute stuff. And I kind of thought it was really fun work for me to do. And then, of course, you move on, you do different roles. And several years go by, I ended up retiring. As I retired, I found myself in the leadership culture space. 
It was a good friend of mine. His name is Simon Sinek, author of Start With Why. He linked me up with a, a leadership company out of St. Louis, Barry Waymiller. We, I started working with them. So I was working with them and Simon. And I was just in the space. I like it kind of in reference or referencing your question prior to this. I didn't really know what I want to do. I knew that I wanted to try something new. And I knew that getting in front of people, I, I had had a thought about getting writing a book. And I figured, okay, if, I'm, if I at least can get in front of people and talk and be comfortable doing that, that'll help. Because I didn't like public speaking. So I figured I should just do it and step into that fear. And it was really as I began to talk about high-performing teams to organizations and companies, and they were articulating the same problem that I had been experiencing when I was in teams of, hey, how do you find the best people? How do you, what are those measures? Because we're putting together these teams and we're getting the best graphics designer, best marketing person, best salesperson, best whatever, best, 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 getting all these best people together and they're getting together and they're doing okay when things are going okay. But as soon as things go sideways, the team turns toxic. What's going on? I said, well, it's because you're, you're not looking at these attributes. You're picking your team based on skills and not attributes. So I realized that it was a book that could be written And that's what prompted me to write the book. And it's been exciting because now we can help people and organizations talk about attributes. So you talked a little bit about it, but what do you hope is, if you could think of the one main takeaway, what that you would want your readers to take with them after reading this book, what would it be? The one main takeaway is that we are judging performance based on only what we see, based on visible skills. We're missing a huge percentage of the performance equation, and you will not get any information or data on how you or anybody else will perform in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. If you are interested in how you show up and perform in stress, challenge, and uncertainty, or you're interested in how your team shows up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty, you have to start looking at these attributes. Because these attributes, these qualities patience, situational awareness, adaptability, all these qualities, these are the ones that show up in stress, challenge, and they're, they're innate to our issue, certainly to our being, their nature. There's a nature-nurture element to attributes and that skills don't have. Again, skills are taught. If, you were to, if I were to kind of give you a back-of-the-envelope test to determine whether or not it's a skill or an attribute, is you'd have to say, you'd ask yourself, okay, can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute. So the example, I know you, you know how to shoot, but say someone asks John, you and I, to go teach them how to shoot. Well, you and I know we could take someone to the rain and teach them how to, to shoot in two hours. I mean, that's a skill, okay? But if someone said, hey, could you teach me how to be more patient or more adaptable? We can't teach them that, right? That's an attribute that has to be developed on their own. So these attributes are driving our performance at very elemental levels. And if you want to understand that about yourself and about your team, I would recommend picking up the book and, and taking a look. Well, you hit one personally that I struggle with, and that's patience. You always get into where you're so action-oriented. And what part of mandatory don't you understand? Get it done, right? So part of the book that I find intriguing, do you believe it's possible to develop that core attribute? So if I have to develop patience and I don't have patience, how am I going to get there? Yes, it is possible to develop attributes. Okay, There's three things that need to be present. First is self-awareness. You have to know you need to develop. Then there's self-motivation. You have to want to develop. And the third one is really important. Then it's a matter of a willingness to go find and place yourself into environments that test and tease that attribute, right? Those are going to be uncomfortable environments because it's asking you to do something that you're not naturally good at doing, right? So if you want to go develop your patience, you have to go find environments that test and tease your patience, whatever that looks like for you. It could be, I'm going to go deliberately drive in traffic, or I'm going to stand up the longest line in the grocery store. I always say, hey, having kids, having kids will help develop your patience. <laughs> but those environments that help test and tease and develop that and start and just consistently start placing yourself into different environments that tease and test your patience and you will develop your patience attribute. 
Yeah, well said. And it's funny. Kids definitely will measure that. And I think back to one of the prior questions where some of my peers struggle is they're so used to that action orientation. That's an order. Get it done. And when they go to go to the civilian world, what do you mean you have to beg and plead sometimes and lead them to get the results? So I think that's a big part of it. Changing gears a little bit, I noticed that you served as an officer in charge of training for a Navy special warfare group, and you created what's known as a mind gym. What does that entail and what does that mean? Yeah, so this is when I was running training and assessment, same job. And one of the other things that I was asked to look at was the resilience levels of our guys. We were at, this was, in the, it was around 2010, so we're in year 10 of the war. We'd already started to experience situations of guys coming back broken and even retiring broken and or even um, starting to feel a dip in their ability to perform properly. And my thought was, as some other people there, was that, hey, we were pretty good physically. In other words, we could get enough weight. We could run the mile fast enough. I mean, there wasn't much more we needed to do physically. But the next leap was a mental leap. And so we just said, okay, let's see if we can start thinking about creating a gym, a facility that housed within it a bunch of different techniques, tools, things that could help train your brain. And, And honestly, we were just throwing things against the wall. I mean, we got these sensory deprivation tanks, these float tanks, tried those out. Those were awesome. We got started working with HRV breathing. How do we manage our physiology better? And we started to understand our sympathetic and parasympathetic modes. We started getting some mental acuity type training things. So you could work on kind of faster reaction times and things like that. And and just did a bunch. Again, as you know, as anybody listening knows, who knows the military, you get into a job and you're in that job for maybe two years, sometimes less, but you do what you can in that time frame. And hopefully as you leave, it might progress, it might not. So I think a lot of the attributes work certainly has progressed. In fact, the Navy SEAL command has recently commissioned a whole command out there in San Diego to study and to address specific attributes they're looking for in SEAL candidates. So that piece definitely flourished. I don't know exactly where the mind gym piece is. I think they're still working with stuff. They're certainly working with human performance type stuff. So all the cool, sexy stuff you can do from a human performance standpoint. Uh, the mental stuff, I'm not sure, but it's still a cool, a cool kind of endeavor. And you probably noticed just two days ago, we talk about suicide in the military. And two days ago, they just came out with the 988 suicide hotline, similar to the 911, which I think is needed. When we have 22 suicides in a day in the military, that's very disheartening. Do you believe it's going to make a difference? And what can we do as leaders to be more attuned to, to people who are having issues and getting them the help they need? Yeah, I mean, I hope it does make a difference. There's going to be a couple roadblocks, or not roadblocks, but a couple challenges to make sure it makes a difference. First is this challenge. And that is this idea that you don't want to show your weakness. Okay. Now, this will come in two forms. The active folks, the active duty folks who are suicidal and having issues, it's going to be a little bit more difficult because we all know when you're still, when you're in the game, when you're in the military game, there's a, you're just, there's a sense of bravado everywhere. So it's a little bit tougher to show, to sometimes be vulnerable. But I would say, encourage people to do that. And leaders have to encourage people. Leaders, if leaders want, again, I always say there's a difference between being in charge and being a leader, okay? It's easy to be in charge. In the military, you're actually given a rank that tells you you're in charge. But being a leader is totally different. You can be in charge and not be a leader. And you can actually, you can't necessarily self-designate. You can't call yourself a leader because that's like calling yourself good looking or funny, right? Other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow. And they do so based on the way you behave. So there are people who are in charge, but they're not leaders. And we all know this. I'm sure you experienced, anybody in the military probably has, someone who's in a position of hierarchy above you, and you look at that person, you say, I wouldn't follow that person anyway. Meanwhile, you look at that person over there, they have no rank whatsoever. It's like, I'd follow that person to hell and back. 
Okay, it's because of the way they behave. So leaders, people in charge, have to endeavor to be leaders by behaving in the way leaders behave. The attributes I talk about in the book for leadership are empathy, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. If a leader behaves this way, or if someone in charge behaves this way, they will become a leader in the eyes of the people that they that are in their span of care. But think about those things, empathy, selflessness. I mean, if a leader, just empathy alone, if someone in charge can start feeling and instilling empathy, then we'll start getting into this problem a little bit more. We'll start seeing when people are hurting, okay? But the key is the leaders have to go first in this. So the leader can't just sit there on a pedestal and say, hey, if you're, I, want, I support you if you're hurting, come talk to me, right? No, the leader has to show what it looks like to talk to people, to be vulnerable, and set the example through action, not just word. So that's where it's going to be a little bit tougher. Those people who are retired, I won't say it's easier, but I will say there's a lot of resources that are available. And you don't have that kind of environment that, that around you anymore that demands sometimes that you have a stiff upper lip. You get to be more vulnerable. In fact, my friends and I, as we reconnect now, they retire, I retire, we have coffee and we actually joke around. We actually, But we're actually, we talk about how much more empathetic we can be as human beings that we're out. And we're actually grateful for it. We're grateful for the fact that we actually can have a, better, a bigger worldview. We can, we can feel more. We can be more open with our feelings. And so if you're getting out, recognize that, that is actually a cool gift that you can have as you get out and use that gift. And if you're hurting, go get help. Go find help. All right? Because the toughest thing to do is to survive. And if you don't survive, if survival means... I need to go get help and do what it takes to survive because that's the that's the expectation. So I really appreciate the significance on empathy. You know, I had a general officer that I worked for one time, and he said, "John, there's a major difference between empathy and sympathy. I'm not telling you that you need to go ahead and sympathize and tolerate nonsense. However, you at least need to be able to understand and walk a mile in their shoes." So apropos to me, and it made such a difference to me where I sort of changed my perspective on that individual. Let me just ask you, if I could, just give you one example, because this happened to us in, in Iraq, and it, was, it deals with, with empathy, okay? It was in Iraq, I can't remember what year, but it was a classic case where we saw it was a 15-year-old kid or something, and he tried to shoot a rocket-propelled grenade at a, at a convoy. And unfortunately, it didn't go well. They had to address him, and he was shot and, of course, killed. And I remember us as SEALs, we were looking at that, and then one t- that evening around the fire, we, it got brought up, and we said to ourselves, okay, let's just walk that back for a second. That kid, 15 years old, probably doesn't have a dad. Okay, probably home with his sisters and mother. There's no high schools. There's no sports. There's no music. There's no alcohol. There's no parties. There's nothing for this kid to get his testosterone out on. He's in a world where there's nothing. One day, some bad guys come and they say, we'll give you 100 dinar if you go shoot this rocket-propelled grenade at this convoy. And every single one of us Navy SEALs to a man said we would be that kid. If we were in that situation, we would be that kid, right? So this is an example. This is not sympathy in terms of we're not, and empathy doesn't require agreement, okay? We're not agreeing with what the kid did. What we are is we're understanding why the kid did what he did. And we can get into their shoes for a second. So that's the power of empathy. Well said. I appreciate you adding that there. We have time for a couple more questions. What is the key to creating optimal performance in all areas of your life? And what are some practical steps someone can take to begin this process? So optimal performance, we have to understand what optimal performance is because it's different than peak performance. There's a lot of emphasis on peak performance, this, peak performance, that, peak, peak, peak. And even I would get, you know, you Navy SEALs are the ultimate peak performance. And I say, I disagree because peak is an apex. That's all it is, right? And there's only one place you can go from an apex and that's down. And peak has to be usually scheduled for and planned for and prepared for. The pro football player spends his entire week planning and prepping to peak for three hours on Sunday, right? So I said, what we are is we are optimal performers. Optimal performance is I'm going to do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in that moment, okay? Sometimes our best looks like peak. 
and his flow states and his clicking and everything's cool. Sometimes our best is I am head down, nugging it out, going step by step because that's all I have right now. And it's dirty and it's ugly and it's gritty. Okay, and it's painful. That is also performing optimally. So optimal performance, the way we have to think about performance is we need to think about performance optimally. I can be peak sometimes, I can be nugging at other times. The other thing it allows us to do, and this kind of answers the question, is proper energy management, okay? The way we perform optimally is we understand that I don't need to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store, okay? My energy level can be, can be managed in a way that is appropriate for what I'm doing in the moment. Here's another mythos about Navy SEALs, which most of, <laughs> most of the listeners probably know, is that because oftentimes the TV and movies will show a bunch of SEALs before they're about to go on a mission. Now they'll be hoo-yawing and high-fiving and just going on like they're about to take a sports field, right? That's not how it goes at all, right? In fact, most of the time we'd be flying into combat and the guys would be sleeping, right? Because the guys understand that we don't know what's coming up. We don't know how long we're going to be out there. We don't know what we're going to have to do. We're going to manage every ounce of energy in the moments so that when we need to peak, we can peak on demand. And as soon as we can recover, we're recovering because we don't know when we need to peak again. That's optimal performance. So understanding proper energy management throughout your day is a great way to optimally perform no matter what, no matter when. So Rich, as we conclude, I'm going to show my age a little bit, but I, I love a guy named Dan Rather, who is one of the best interviewers. And one of the things that he has is Access TV, and it's called The Big Interview. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but he always concludes every interview by this question, and I'll say it to you as well. What questions should I have asked you that I didn't today? That's a great question. I think maybe here's one. I'll kind of just talk about what the best teams actually look like. And I kind of struggled with this as I was running training until it kind of hit me when I was watching our teams, even though I'd done it hundreds of times on the ground, I was watching from the rafters, our teams do close quarter combat, kind of hostage rescue style. And when you watch close quarter combat, what you recognize is that at the beginning of that evolution, you'll have a bunch of guys stacked outside the door, number one man, two man, three man, four man, and so on and so forth. And those guys will run into the room and they'll spread out and they'll do what they need to do. And then wherever the next threat is in that room, whoever's closest to that threat becomes the number one man. And everybody stacks on that guy. And then they go in, they keep and it keeps on changing. And so this is a concept I call dynamic subordination. This is in fact, dynamic subordination is in fact how the best teams operate. The best teams operate in a way that they understand problems, issues, and challenges can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who's closest to that problem immediately steps up and takes charge. And everybody follows, right? It's a dynamic swap between leader and follower relationships. I also call it alpha swapping. All of us in the military know this because we know this is how combat works, right? Just because I was the officer in charge of pretty much all of my operations didn't mean everybody was always in support of me. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Most of the time I was in support of other people, whether the snipers or the breachers or the assaulters, right? But the best teams understand each other and understand this matrix and they know, okay, I'm going to step up when I need to step up and I'm going to receive when I need to receive and to support. This is also how the highest performing teams perform optimally for the long game. Because if you think about it, you can go infinitely if someone's stepping up and they're at peak and the other people who are supporting them are recovering a little bit. Because it allows, it's like kind of like the flock of geese that flies south in the V formation, right? That lead bird is taking about 75% of the wind resistance, but only for about 10 minutes. And then that lead bird swaps out and goes to the back. New bird steps up. That lead bird now is just kind of recovering and floating in the drag before it's another bird's chance to do it. That's how the best teams operate. So I think that's a concept that probably helped the listeners. Well, first, let me begin by saying I truly thank you for your service. I'm sure there were times that were very difficult over the years. And to serve as a Navy SEAL all those years says a lot to your testament. But more importantly, I really appreciate what you're doing now that you were uh, hung up the uniform. I think it's important. Well, thank you. And thank you for your service, by the way. So, Yeah, thank you. 
I think it's important to, for everyone to recognize that. And what I would like the readers to take away is take the time to go look at his book. Go look at the attributes. Take the time to review it. And I really want to thank you for listening today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Airmen Helping Airmen, brought to you by the Air Force Aid Society. To find out more about how we make a difference, visit www.afas.org. And then be sure to search Airmen Helping Airmen in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you obtain your podcasts. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button so you won't miss any future episodes. On behalf of everyone at the Air Force Aid Society, thank you very much for listening. And please join us on social media. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Airmen Helping Airmen, brought to you by the Air Force Aid Society. To find out more about how we make a difference, visit AFAS.org. And then be sure to search for Airmen Helping in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of everyone at the Air Force Aid Society, thanks for listening and join us on social media.